it's been really lovely to uh, hear some of the things that, that have been said in the songs um, about um, various aspects of our relationship with God because some of those are definitely things that I feel um, are pertinent to Moses and uh, pertinent to us as well. So it's really lovely to see the meshing in of the worship and the word. Um, as you know, as a church, we've been going through a number of the key biblical figures over the month of August, and this week we are focusing on Moses. And uh, I'm sure that the uh, the people at Perry Street, as it's an all-age service, they will be focusing more on uh, our erstwhile uh, colleague, uh, colleague, uh, uh, member of congregation, Andy Robb, who wrote this book about the amazing agents of God. Uh, and I believe that they've been more or less following uh, what, what he has written about the various agents of God. Uh, so Moses, I, I want to put it out to you first of all. I would like you to just uh, shout out things that come to mind when you think of Moses. Anyone? Sorry? Bulrushes. Basket. 40 years in the desert. 40 years in the desert, yeah. The burning bush. The burning bush. Ten Commandments. Lots of different things, aren't there, that, that we know of from the story of Moses. So, just, uh, you've picked up on a lot of these that, that, that I, that came to my mind immediately when I was thinking. It's Moses in the, in the bulrushes. Uh, there's his, his sister Miriam, I think, looking on, and uh, uh, presumably, I, I think that that was probably uh, Pharaoh's daughter who found Moses in the in the bulrushes. Uh, Moses' encounter uh, with the burning bush when he gets his commission from God to go and rescue the people from Egypt. Um, the parting of the sea to allow the Israelites to cross into uh, the, the promised land or get out of Egypt at least. Uh, other things, hopefully, coming up. The Ten Commandments have been uh, mentioned. This is uh, the story of uh, Moses um, uh, helping the Israelites to succeed in their battle uh, against the Amalekites, sorry, get my teeth in, while he stands on the top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. And if you remember, as long as his hands were held high, they won. And Aaron and Hur had to hold his hands up when he grew tired, and he was like that the whole day. Um, they got a stone for him to sit on, which I didn't, wouldn't have thought was terribly comfortable. But there we go. Uh, he uh, Just one aspect of uh, Moses' life. And here he is at the age of 120, when he's directed by God to go on to Mount Nebo to die. He can see the promised land, but he cannot enter it. His eyes are not weak, we are told, and his strength is not gone at the age of 120. Uh, so whilst he's pictured as a, you know, wizened old man, I mean, that's an artist's interpretation, but you would think, humanly speaking, by 120, he probably did have his grey hair and his beard. So, 
there are obviously many aspects to this uh, patriarchal figure uh, as his complete biography, his birth to his death, is described by the biblical narrative. There are four whole books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, which trace his life and the life of the Israelite people as they journey from captivity to the Promised Land. He is clearly a hugely important figure in the Old Testament and is also referred to in the New Testament with aspects of his character being referenced as models for good Christian conduct. I've been recently uh, reading Hebrews and um, because I was at that time I was reading Hebrews 3, I was already aware that I'd be speaking about Moses. Um, I read this in verse 5 of Hebrews 3. Moses' faithfulness as a servant in God's house and witness to what would be spoken by God in the future is acknowledged but then contrasted with the greater value of Christ's faithfulness as the son over God's house. So obviously he he is recognised as such a faithful servant of God and uh, I believe there are uh, plenty of occasions when in in the New Testament the life of Moses is contrasted, um, not in a a bad way, but is used as as sort of like a model for what Christ did. Um, Now, I'm going to focus more on Moses as a man of faith and his character rather than Moses the lawbringer, Moses the the person um, who had the, the burning bush experience and all the different things that happened, because that would take us a week wouldn't it? And I'd like to focus, um, first of all, on uh, Hebrews 11, faith in action. It's this sort of uh, list of people um, who are these great people of faith. And um, I'm going to start at um, verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. There's so much one could say about Moses. So I'll be concentrating on a few aspects of his life and character which has stood out to me that have helped me know more about what it is to be such a faithful follower of Jesus, to understand that call of God on one's life. I'm sure there are other equally valid points to make and uh, I am very much a lay preacher, as you know, so... Please forgive me if I miss out anything you think should have been mentioned.
First of all, he was, uh, he was God's chosen person for a specific duty. And God initially uses his parents' faith and actions to work his purposes out. It surprised me, sometimes, you know, when you're focusing on something, things leap out to you as you read things afresh. So, we start with verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The baby in the bulrushes. That's a familiar image to those brought up in the Christian faith and one that we've already alluded to. A nice story, isn't it? To those reading it with at least initially a happy ending. What's the background? In Exodus 1, we read that the Pharaoh of Egypt decreed that all Hebrew boy babies were to be drowned at birth because the Israelites were growing in number and the Egyptians were concerned about maintaining their dominance. It seems even that the midwives uh, were supposed to be killing Hebrew boy babies uh, as they were born. Uh, but they very craftily found a way round doing this by saying that the Hebrew women were so strong that they gave birth before the midwives arrived. Um, it's, it's not a pleasant thought at all, is it? And then we read, um, I looked up in various translations, this, um, this business about when uh, Moses arrived, his parents saw that he was delightful or beautiful, fine, healthy, those are the words in various translations and I think if you just look at it from that point of view, you would think well, any doting parent is thinking their babies are beautiful, it's got to be something a bit more than that, surely you know, I remember um, I think you'll forgive me for saying this, that when Andrew was born, he was a scrunched up little chap Uh, you couldn't see his eyes he was boring his brains out and I still called him beautiful, because he was my son. And that's what you do, isn't it? I mean, that's the relationship between a mother and a, her child. So it can't be just that um, Moses' parents thought, this is a beautiful baby. But it, it, in Hebrews we read that they saw he was no ordinary child. So they must have had an inkling that he was destined for greater things that he was special. Um, So it wasn't, I don't think, I'm conjecturing that it was not about his his physical appearance, but about something they discerned about him. So his his mother, uh, Jochebed, somebody can correct my pronunciation if it's wrong, um, is obviously a strong-minded, fearless woman who devises this ingenious plan Two, after realising she can no longer keep her baby hidden, putting him in this basket, coated in tar and pitch, amongst the bulrushes by the bank of the Nile. And not only does she do this, but um, she stations her daughter Miriam to find out what would happen to him, as it says in Exodus 2 verse 4. And this struck me as being not blind panic faith, but practical faith. It was something that she, she did, she thought it through. Uh, it was still precarious, the child could still have been killed. But nonetheless, she was strategic in the way she dealt with it. 
And I wonder whether we are prone to panic first. I am. There have been times in my life when I've just, I have had faith, but it's been a bit of a blind rabbit in headlights sort of faith. Whereas if we, we rely on God, we, we, can, we can pray through and put some things in place perhaps. Yes, some things um, doesn't mean to say that we don't follow the prompting of God to put some things in action to um, help us through. So that was the the first point. And then obviously we know that um, uh, Moses is nursed by his mother. Uh, That that plan goes through very nicely. Miriam's there. Miriam says to Pharaoh's daughter, do you need someone to nurse this Hebrew baby? Because she knows he's a Hebrew baby. Um, and, And that happens. We are not told how long he was weaned Uh, but it's clear that he knows his true identity I believe he knows he's a child of God I believe he's taught by his parents who he is before he goes into the Egyptian palace Um, and when he moves into adulthood um, he goes to his countrymen, Exodus 2, verse 11, and he looks with compassion on their hard labours. So despite what Stephen says in Acts 2 about Moses being educated in all the wisdom and culture of the Egyptians, which is undoubtedly true, he knew he was first and foremost a Hebrew and he associated very keenly with the plight of his people. He rejects the prestige of becoming a member of the Egyptian royal family. He becomes a foundational character in the greatest event affecting Israelite national formation and religious consciousness, the exodus from Egypt. He's called prophetically by God to represent Yahweh to the people and God uses the circumstances of his birth to his advantage. So, does he have a query about who he is? I think not. I think he knows who he is. And I found that this (coughs) quote here was really good. God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. So, Moses knows his true identity. He is called for a specific purpose by God and he doesn't know how it's going to unfold at that point um, and de- um, by God and demonstrates faith in pursuing that call despite not knowing what will happen. I just want to pause for a, a minute. What is the call of God on our lives? We can look at someone like Moses and be completely overwhelmed or think it's uh, someone whose life is, is beyond ours. And indeed, very few of us are going to be led to lead a nation through a wilderness, uh, a rebellious people uh, to, to boot. But 
we all have a call on our life from God. Can you look back and trace the hand of God on events? Not many of us have a burning bush commissioning. But I believe that God can use the most mundane of life experiences to direct our paths and prepare us for the godly role in life. And those around us play their part in our development just as most of his parents do. So, I, I, I'm delighted that this weekend uh, I've got family with us, my sister and the husband. And uh, I'd already written this before I knew they were going to be here, but we, we I believe, were, were very blessed in our youth, shall I say, because uh, there was a community of uh, believers in a very remote part of Cheshire. And through that time, uh, we had, yes, yeah, some, you can say, some strange teaching maybe, or, you know, maybe it wasn't as solid as it could have been. But at the same time, we were brought together by um, people, uh, leaders, putting into place uh, an environment for young people to meet. And I, I honestly believe that was so formative in my development as a Christian. Uh, other things have happened, other teachings happened, what have you. But that's, if you like, the faithfulness of God's people um, around us meant that we, we had that, um, that lovely time of uh, Christian fellowship. So, I just want you to maybe, uh, when you're feeling that you are a nobody, to think of what God has done in your life and what he has led you to and who it is around you that's, that's blessed you by their faithfulness and their part in your story. Um, so secondly, I want us to look at uh, Moses as a human being with his flaws and inadequacies like the rest of us. But God perseveres with him because he is the one who wants to carry out this special purpose. So we see this in a number of incidents, don't we? First of all, as a young man, a young adult coming out of the Egyptian palace, I mean, he could have been 39, could have been getting near to his 40th year, I believe, actually. Um, he kills an Egyptian who was beating one of his Hebrew countrymen. And he didn't think of the consequences of such an impetuous act. We read that in Exodus 2, verses 12 to 14. He clearly couldn't tolerate injustice. That was a very good point, wasn't it, of his character. But his impulsive act would mean 40 years in Midian in hiding. So, he becomes a stranger in a foreign land. So his, his, his um, strong allegiance to the people of Israel meant that he uh, went for 40 years into Midian. He even, it says in Exodus 2, uh, verse 22, called his firstborn Gershom, which means stranger. But God uses Moses' fugitive status to put his plan into action. He, marrow, he marries Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, uh, and keeps his father-in-law's sheep. 
later on we see that his, even his relationship with Jethro is, is more than just a family connection. In Exodus 18, Jethro counsels Moses on how to deal with the enormous task of judging the disputes the people had with one another by appointing competent men to bear the burden. So again, we see the interaction of people along the way in his life. His encounter with the burning bush in Exodus 3 shows that Moses knows the voice of God. When God calls him, he responds, here I am. It seems like a a very special um, occasion, doesn't it? A very special moment to be called in that way. He takes off his shoes and he has holy fear of God. He hides his face. When you're called by God, that encounter is special. But I was just thinking along the lines of uh, the, the lines of the song by the Fellinghams, I think. You can come in the silence or the stillness. You can come in the noise. Maybe God hasn't come to you in a burning bush experience, but he can come in the silence. He can come in the way that he wants to come for you. So God lays out his plan of deliverance and then we find Moses seriously expressing his feelings of inadequacy, don't we? He grows into his role very slowly. Exodus 3 verse 4, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Exodus 4 verse 1, what if they don't take me seriously? Exodus 4 verse 10, I am slow of speech and tongue. Exodus 4 verse 13, please send somebody else. So he's, you know, it, are we, we, we realising uh, afresh that this was a human being with inadequacies? And how many of us feel inadequate to the task? I would suggest most of us do. And uh, he, he annoys God by this reluctance, but at the same time, God allows Aaron, his brother, to be Moses' mouthpiece, at least initially. I think Moses is, uh, he grows in his confidence and uh, he doesn't, uh, he, he, he is the one who has the direct relationship with God. Do we go into excuse mode when asked by God to do things? I'm not talking of something as grand as leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, but there are definitely times in my life when I found all sorts of excuses not to respond to a prompting I've had. So he's he's passionate and impulsive. Descending from um, the mount where he's received uh, the commandments, Moses knows ahead of time that the people are worshipping a golden idol because God has warned him of this fact and Aaron has allowed the people to twist his arm to, to get, this, uh, get this idol made. And when he sees the, the people, he uh, angrily breaks the stone tablets inscribed with God, God's laws. You could say it's righteous anger, 
but it's, it's anger. I think this is Charlton Heston doing the breaking here, actually, on this slide. Does God value this passionate quality in Moses? He is an effective mediator between God and the Israelites. He doesn't hold back from going to God whenever he's called to go to God. Far from now being timid before God, he prays with a sense of urgency, unafraid to ask God to refrain from divine retribution and willing to accept the blame for the people's actions. He is allowed to speak with God face to face. And then we have this second big incident, which is very significant for him, which is hitting the rock with his staff at Mary Bar to bring forth water rather than speaking to the rock which is what God had commanded him to do now he is clearly very irritated by the people of Israel Moses that is uh, and who could blame him they have done nothing but gripe and moan about the food lack of water they're very fickle they can't wait for Moses to come down from the mount they have to, you know, get themselves a, a substitute God. Um, God himself describes the Israelites as a stiff-necked, rebellious people in Exodus 33, verse 5. Moses loses it with the Israelites in Numbers 20, verse 10. This is one instance, I'm sure there are others. Listen now, you rebellious people. So really quite cross with them. And this means that because he hits the rock, he does not go about this in the right way, uh, Moses and Aaron are barred from entering the, the very promised land that um, he has guided the Israelites to for almost half a century. In human terms, we would think the Israelites had done far more to be barred from entering the promised land, wouldn't we, than Moses. But this is the price of leadership. It's a high calling. Moses, um, God had conferred upon Moses a grave responsibility to only communicate what God actually said. And he and Aaron uh, hadn't done that. Um, he pays for it dearly. I don't believe that we find Moses particularly moaning about this. It must have been devastating in human terms, surely, that he... Uh, who had faithfully allowed himself to um, reject the privileges of a life in the Egyptian palace. He who had become a nomad uh, was the one who would not enter the promised land. Nonetheless, Moses' Moses's special relationship with God is underlined by God himself when Aaron and Miriam that's his brother and sister, decide to criticise Moses for marrying a Cushite woman. God says this of Moses in Numbers 12, verses 7 to 8. He is entrusted and faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, directly, clearly and openly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. A very special relationship. Moses knew his dependency on God 
in Exodus 33, verse 15, he says, If your presence does not go with me, do not lead us up from here. He was flawed like the rest of us, but he was humble and he knew his God. So he is steadfastly obedient, Moses is, despite the hardships he had to endure. He puts God's call on his life before anything else. His is a story of faith, not the law, somebody has said. Obviously, the bringing of the Mosaic law was crucially important in the story of um, the the, the Israelite nation. He um, was the person who uh, brought the commandments for the Israelites' personal lives, the law governing their social lives, their ordinance, the ordinances governing, governing their religious lives. It was hugely important. However, in the Hebrews passage, we read at the beginning, it seems that, sorry, that we read at the beginning, it seems that it is faith that gets the most focus. We don't read about Moses' failures. We read of his parents' faith, already alluded to. And then the faith Moses exercised at various points in his life, which meant the rejection of a life of comfort and privilege. Let's just have a little recap. These are pertaining to Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover. Remember the story of putting the blood on the lintel so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of uh, Israel. So he did all of those things by faith. And we have this, this illusion, don't we, to the faithfulness of Christ. Christ, it says in Philippians 2, verses 7 to 8, emptied himself and assumed the form of a bondservant humbling himself by becoming obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. There are other things listed, of course, of things that Moses did by faith. But I hope that I've covered some of the things that help us to focus ourselves on this great man of faith, chosen by God for a specific task, the way his parents' faith was an integral part of the story, the way that whilst he had weaknesses and felt inadequate, he chose to put his faith in God, choosing a life as a sojourner, enduring hardships, putting God first. He is a faithful servant of God and a faithful servant to his people right to the end. He knows he is nearing death, And he knows from God that after he's gone, the Israelites will be their same fickle selves 
and they will be doing all sorts of nonsense instead of putting their trust in God and behaving properly. Yet, he carries out all that God asks him to and writes a song proclaiming the goodness of God. Thank you for including that at the beginning. Declaring the goodness of God and blesses the sons of Israel. Here are the last verses of the blessing. Deuteronomy 33. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides across the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemies before you saying, destroy them. So Israel will live in safety. Jacob will dwell secure in a land of grain and new wine where the heavens drop dew. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and you will tread on their heights. I think it's marvellous that from this life we have this, this everlasting verse. I know the Bible is everlasting, but it didn't strike me um, until I read it again that this was a verse that was penned by Moses. The eternal God is your refuge and his everlasting arms are under you. Isn't that marvellous? That, that is such a, a, a frequently quoted verse and it's from this, this man of tremendous faith who endured such a lot to follow uh, the God he, he believed in. So I'm going to hand over to um, uh, Oliver and while he's coming up I just want to pray a prayer for us here. Lord, we may feel overwhelmed by the face of Moses. We may suppose that we could never complete anything of such great note or exemplify such faith. But we are your children and you call each of us to put our faith in you and listen to your call. Help us to live lives of greater faith, understanding that you know our weaknesses and that you will equip us to do the things you've purposed us to do. Let us learn from Moses that though he thought himself slow of speech and tongue, He could be used mightily by you through obedience, determination and faith. Amen.